Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with engaging author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you are interested in accessing unique bonus content, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group. I offer two levels, Page Turners, which includes my popular Early Reads program, where patrons have access to monthly early digital reads through NetGalley and exclusive pre-publication author chats, as well as regular bonus episodes and fun surprise content. My second level is Lit Lovers, which includes all of the page turner benefits, as well as my Traveling Galley program, where patrons can read at least three to four new titles a month that are in print galley form and are passed along to other members. One of July's selections is the new William Kent Kruger book, The River We Remember. In addition, there are two monthly episodes, fiction-nonfiction pairings, and spoiler-filled interviews with three authors. The link to join is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Madeline Martin about The Keeper of Hidden Books. Madeline is a New York Times and international best-selling author of historical fiction and historical romance. She lives in sunny Florida with her two daughters, one incredibly spoiled cat, and a man so wonderful he's been dubbed Mr. Awesome. She is a diehard history lover who will happily lose herself in research any day. When she's not writing or researching, you can find her spending time with her family at Disney. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome, Madeline. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks, Cindy. How are you? I'm doing quite well. And I'm so excited to talk with you for my podcast because we haven't done this before. You came to Houston for my literary salon for your last book, and you were a huge hit, and we had so much fun together. And so now it's really fun that you're on my podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with Thoughts from a Page. And the book event was so much fun, too. (laughs) It really was. It was nice to have you and Linda Cohen-Loigman here. We had a lot of fun. Yes, we did. (laughs) Well, and the other thing that's exciting about this book is that I launched a new program for my Patreon group called Traveling Galleys, and your publisher printed three galleys for us just specifically for us because they haven't been doing many physical galleys lately, and they decided they would print three, and my group has been loving them, passing the book from one to the other. I keep seeing all these great posts about your book, so I'm really glad that that worked out. Oh, I'm so glad that they were able to do that for you guys, and I'm glad everyone's been enjoying it. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it was kind of fun to get to say these were printed just for us. They were too. (laughs) I loved that. So why don't we start with you giving me a quick synopsis of The Keeper of Hidden Books for those that haven't read it yet. So The Keeper of Hidden Books is um, actually inspired by the true story of Warsaw's public librarians during the Nazi occupation during World War II in Poland. And um, it really uh, covers um, how they, when the Nazis came in and were trying to completely get rid of Polish culture, how hard the librarians worked to ensure that people still had books to read, especially to get them through some, such dark, horrible times, doing everything that they could from saving books, like keeping them from being destroyed, and also even opening up um, secret libraries. So it's definitely another book about books from me. <laughs> that seems to be a theme that you are working on. It is, you know, and I think it's just because I'm such a reader that um, that for me, books, they're just such a part of my everyday life, even outside of the fact that I'm an author. And um, and they always have been. And so it just it just feels so natural to write about having books in one's life. <laughs> and I think readers love to read books about books. So you've clearly found a niche that works really well, both for you and for readers. I love that. And you took a fabulous research trip to Poland because it was after you came to Houston. And so I followed it on Instagram. Tell me more about that. Yes. So um, I got to go to Poland. I went to Warsaw for two weeks. And, you know, it's funny because on each of my research trips, I usually bring a family member with me. And when my mom found out that I was going to be going to Poland, she said, oh, dibs. So she came with me and um, I was there for two weeks. And uh, I mean, I was staying in Old Town. And one of the first things that I like to do when I arrive in a new city um, is I like to look up all the museums near me. And I I did a search and there were about 12 of them within less than a mile uh, walking distance, which was absolutely amazing. And I had a really incredible tour guide who put together this really comprehensive tours, took us all over Warsaw. These lasted about eight hours each, and she talked pretty much the entire time. She really was just such a wealth of knowledge. And um, I'm actually even able to send her emails asking her more questions. And she always comes back with way more information um, than I was even expecting to get. So, uh, So that just really was an incredible wealth of information. How did you first learn about these Polish librarians that continue to try to make sure books got into the hands of people even during the darkest times when the Nazis were occupying? So you never know what you're going to find when you're doing research. And I kind of stumbled across this. Actually, I already had like half of the book written when I found this information. And and it was one of those, oh, stop the presses kind of things because it was just such an amazing uh, story that I felt like really needed to be told. But I found it was sort of like a diary of sorts that librarians were writing during Nazi occupation about the efforts that they were doing to try to preserve literature and ensure that that literature could still get into the hands of patrons. And um, and it was it was just so incredible. And they had to be careful even how they were wording it, because if at any point in time the Nazis happened to find that book, of course, all operations would cease. And so they had to like be very careful about how they worded things. They couldn't specify where certain locations were. Um, but it was it was really incredible. And it sent me on this sort of rabbit hole of finding all this incredible information about libraries and bookstores and just the book community in general in Warsaw during World War II. You create a book club of sorts in the book where they're reading books that are banned by the Nazis. How did you decide which books they were going to read and discuss? So um, it was a really detailed, careful selection that was cultivated, (laughs) and it was really, um, I guess, curated more 
And so I had to find books that were banned by Hitler uh, or Germany. Um, I had to find books that were published in Polish during that time period. It was it was a very, very difficult process. <laughs> it seems like it would be easy, but it really was very hard. And then I also wanted to make sure that I read all of those books as well. Some of them I had read previously, and some of them I thought, oh, this would be a really interesting book. Let me read it. And so um, I actually did kind of, you know, as I was going through the publishing or the, the writing process, change a couple of books from time to time, realizing maybe that one's not going to work. But I think one of the most important aspects of these books is that as they discuss these, these books that they're not supposed to even have because they're all banned, you know, I really wanted them all to learn a little bit something about themselves while reading these books, because I think that's one of the beautiful things about books is the way that it sort of sees into your soul and it brings these new perspectives and it helps really open your mind and, and your heart to just everything around you through the perspective of what you read in that book. And that was something really important for me to convey with the selections that they use. I actually think it was probably quite hard to pick those because you did have to pick books, as you mentioned, that would make good book club discussions within the parameters you already mentioned, but also just stories that are going to resonate with people and ones that you wanted to be familiar with so you could actually talk about them. Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely took a lot of research and, um, and a lot of reading, which I didn't mind, uh, to come up with that specific list. And I loved the book club's name initially, something like books banned by Hitler or Nazi banned books. Yeah, or the anti-Hitler book club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then they had to change it. And that was another interesting fact I learned because I didn't know that the Nazis called people that opposed them bandits. Yes. And, you know, I thought it was it was such a funny kind of thing, like, oh, those bandits. It sounds like something so cartoony and like westerny or something. And so I thought, oh, how fun would it be if this was a bandit book club? I loved it. And that's one of my favorite things about historical fiction is learning things that you didn't know ahead of time. You know, I'm reading and I'm like, OK, I've read so many World War II books and I never had heard that before. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I love about historical fiction as well. I just love to I like to think of it as like brain candy, like the, you know, the fun fiction part of it. But then you have like these like nuggets of knowledge thrown in there that are just so fun to absorb. Exactly. And every single time I read a book set during World War II that deals with the Nazis, I again am just totally stunned by how horrific they were. You know, you can just read it over and over again, be very familiar with the story. And then I get totally involved in your book. And I'm like, how were people that horrible? Punching women in the face, shooting people on the street in the face for no reason at all. It's just so horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have to say that when I was doing research, I actually kind of fell into a little bit of a depression just because it really was so dark researching these horrible things that humans were doing to other humans. And, um, you know, when it comes to the book, I tried very hard. I mean, I definitely wanted to showcase that, yes, these things did happen, but I tried very hard to keep from really making it the forefront and making it almost gratuitous. I really wanted the bravery of the Polish spirit and how hard people fought to save not only books, but also other people. That's what I really was hoping to make sure was definitely forefront. But, you know, you really can't talk about any place in Europe that was occupied by Nazis without having some form of the atrocities really discussed. I mean, it's, it's just almost doing a disservice to what they endured. I agree with all of that. And I felt that you walked that line very well. But I agree. I mean, you can't whitewash it. You can't say, OK, we're not going to include anything that happened because then everybody's going to be like, well, 
you make it sound so much rosier than it was. Right. But if you just include every detail or even a quarter of the details, you know, it's horrifying. So I think you struck a good balance between the horrific things that were happening, but also holding up the Polish people and how so many of them fought back against what was happening. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I wondered about how difficult it would be to get absorbed in some of that research, like if it impacted your sleep and just made it difficult to kind of write some of those things. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are things that I've read that I will never be able to get out of my head, things that I won't even tell my husband about because they just were so horrific. And, you know, those things are, you know, they are documented in history. So it's not like they're ever going to disappear. But I personally just can't put them in my book because it's like, you know, it really is some things once you learn, you can't unlearn. And and those are very, very difficult. Absolutely. And the second layer to that is how easily they managed to brainwash a number of people, how quickly people jumped on the bandwagon with some of these awful things they were doing. You know, it's just so disheartening. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, honestly, banning books has a lot to do with that, restricting people from, because I mean, you know, one of the wonderful things about reading books is the ability to walk in the shoes of someone that you're not and to really kind of have an experience that you would never really have otherwise. And in doing that, it really opens our ability to accept everybody. And with these banned books, they took away the opportunity to make somebody who is faceless, somebody that you know. And, and in doing that, it makes them easier to really persecute against because you don't have this connection to them. And I really feel like part of the book banning was part of, was really honestly part of not letting people get to know those people who were being persecuted against. Absolutely. They remain a they instead of individual people that you feel like you have something in common with and are going to have empathy for them. Oh, absolutely. I think that's exactly what causes the book banning in the first place is the, the preventing knowledge from getting out and teaching empathy and sympathy and understanding. Absolutely. Well, who was the hardest to write and who was the easiest of the characters in this book? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. <laughs> so, you know, I think honestly, Zofia's character was probably the easiest to write just because she is my protagonist. And I had her completely, you know, I, I had her so fully fleshed out when I wrote it that I pretty much was Zofia. And, um, you know, as far as the hardest, um, you know, I think probably maybe Matka's character because, and Matka is Zofia's mother. And I think part of that really has a lot to do with the fact that some of the things that Zofia was getting mad at her mother for, I noticed that I do myself with my daughters. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's interesting being a mother with teenagers, writing about a tumultuous relationship between a teenager and her mother. And, and it's kind of impossible to not kind of see some similarities between those. <laughs> Absolutely. Raising teenage girls can be really hard. Right. <laughs> well, what surprised you the most when writing this one? You know, honestly, really finding all the details about the hidden libraries, I think, was the most incredible discovery for me. Just the fact that not only were there, they hiding these books and, and that they were like creating these, these little secret libraries in the ghetto and also, you know, obviously on the Polish side as well but also how involved the library actually was with the Warsaw Uprising. I mean, they really did turn it almost into something of a fortress. They dug wells. They had hidden walls that they built to hide books behind. They took in the wounded. They buried the dead in and, and some of the courtyards. 
I mean, the library really was so involved in the community on so many levels from the very beginning of the war all the way through the end of the war and, you know, on into May 1945 that I don't want to talk about. But when people read the book, they'll understand how incredibly poignant and powerful that particular month was for the library. Can you talk a little bit more about how the librarians operated some of these secret libraries and then also how the hidden libraries operated in the ghettos? Yes. So the hidden libraries on the Polish side, they had one particular location and um, it was unfortunately blown up during the um, uprising. So it, it wasn't available for me to actually use. I had to kind of make up my own, but they had it in a location that it was kind of an off the off the beaten path kind of branch that nobody really was was going to. And they operated it out of that one where um, they had like these fake logs that they would keep. And so if they ever did get caught, nobody would know that those logs were, they, they basically like misdated them so that if it ever was caught, they would just assume that it was for something prior to the war, which was really incredible. And they had their whole entire stock. They had a hidden warehouse where they kept everything. And the, the actual location of that hidden warehouse, I never was able to find it in my research likely because they were wanting to ensure that it stayed hidden for obvious reasons. And then within the ghetto, they also were not allowed to have libraries for a certain time period. And during that time, people who were able to bring their own personal libraries with them did things like they would put the books into a suitcase and they would go from door to door to the people who wanted to borrow their books and they would act almost as like a personal lending library which is really just so incredible how giving and generous that must have been because apparently these books were so con- like so constantly read that their pages were soft, they were falling apart, they were covered, you know, they were just filthy because they were always, always being read. And then also we had Basha Temkin who had operated what was called Centos, C-E-N-T-O-S. And she basically had it where it was like a front that was like a like an orphan's home and like where, where kids could kind of come almost like a YMCA for orphans. And there were little shelves that they built that would flip around. So you might have a dollhouse and it would flip around and it would have books there. And she always wanted to ensure that she had Polish books and Yiddish books because a lot of the children didn't speak Yiddish. And so it was very important to her that when they would check out books, they would receive a Polish one and a Yiddish one. And she worked so hard to also teach so many of those children Yiddish as well. I just think that is so fantastic that people were that focused on books because it was a great escape, I'm sure, for them, but also that they managed to make sure people had access to all of that even during the Nazi occupation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it it really is incredible that people were so giving. Was there anything you discovered in your research that you weren't able to include in the book? Oh, gosh, so much. (laughs) So um, I did a ton, a ton of research with this book. I had over 100 nonfiction books that I used. I had had, uh, over 15 spiral-bound notebooks that were completely hand-filled with my notes. And initially, I was going to have two POVs. I was going to have Yanina's character and Zofia's as well. And so I had done significant amount of research on life as a Jewish girl in Poland before, during, and after the war, um, including in the ghetto as well. So I had done tons and tons of research on that that I didn't really get to incorporate very much of because I I ended up just having enough room to do one POV character. Um, And even then I went a little bit longer than I think I was supposed to, but I can't think of anything that I would have uh, taken out that's already in there. But as far as any like one thing, I it's like a laundry list of things I could have included. 
I'm just always so curious about that because I'm sure the research is fascinating. And so you're trying to cram in every single detail to the story. And after a while, you're like, okay, this can't fit anywhere. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, there are times that I've had to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite scenes because I just have so much information that I'm trying to pack into it. And I tell myself, okay, you're not a nonfiction author. You're a fiction author. Time to go back and, and you know, reassess this and see what I can do to cut it down and make it more fiction and less nonfiction. But it's so hard sometimes because I have just learned so much about the Polish resistance and the Nazi occupation in Warsaw that, that I really want to make sure that I can share. So that's one of the wonderful things about getting to do these type of interviews so that I can have the opportunity to kind of talk about some of it and explain a little bit more in detail. Exactly. How did you settle on Poland in the beginning? My family is from Poland. And so, um, you know, for, for me, it was something I always really wanted to do is sort of explore a book on Poland or that was set in Poland. And uh, the funny thing, though, now and now that I've learned so much about Poland is uh, my family is from Poznan and I, you know, I was in Warsaw and saying that kind of Poland is kind of like saying I'm from North America, but like I'm American and, and my dad's family lived in Canada. <laughs> they're so far apart. Yes, and they're so far apart, and they're also just completely different cultures. I'm not super familiar with Poland. I've never been there. My husband actually worked there for a while on a case. He was there for, I think, maybe six weeks with an arbitration, but I have never been there. And I didn't really realize that Poland was unified with the Treaty of Versailles after World War I. And you talked in the book about how they had been occupied. And then, of course, after World War II, they became part of the Soviet bloc. So I was just thinking, I don't know a lot about Polish history. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of people don't. And to be honest with you, I really didn't either. Going into this, it was there was so much to uncover. And when I do my research, I don't just stay in the time period of World War II. I like to delve deep into the history because I feel like people who live there, they're sort of the sum of the entire historical parts, right? Like we are the sum of everything that's happened in America up to the point that we live in right now. And so, um, so I was really surprised to find that they were under Russian occupation for over 120 years. And then after the Great War, when the Treaty of Versailles was signed in 1918, Poland finally had established its own independence. And they had only just celebrated 20 years of independence when the Nazi occupation came in. And then they went right from the Nazi occupation to Soviet Union occupation that didn't end until 1990. And that's one of the things that I think is so incredibly important about this story. And, and that's why I had mentioned earlier that I really wanted to highlight that like Polish fighting spirit. Because these generations of Poles had fought for centuries to try to establish a free country. And, and you know, Zofia and her friends, they were born in like this bubble, like this little bubble of freedom. And I think that was one of the harder things with writing Zofia's character was thinking about what would it really be like to have all of our freedom completely stripped away? Um, because, you know, we've been born into freedom and, and it's so easy to almost take for granted and when you think about what would life be like if I had no freedom, if I was completely oppressed by, you know, an occupying country that came in, what would that be like? And, and that was really one of my biggest struggles with writing her character was wrapping my brain around that. And um, because it really is just so all encompassing. Well, and to think they only had 20 years and they were occupied again. I just think that's so sad. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, tell me about the title and tell me about the cover. So the Keeper of Hidden Books, that will really make a lot of sense when people start reading the book, especially when they get kind of toward the end. 
So I don't want to give away too much, but I will say that Zofia does end up working with the library. That's not too much of a spoiler. And then as far as the cover goes, um, you know, we actually went through a couple of variations of the cover and I really wanted to showcase like, you know, one of these, this like hidden warehouse. And so that for me was really important, but I also still wanted to make sure that the cover had an element of hope to it. And, um, and I feel like the, the artist who did create the cover did a really lovely job with that. Actually, a fun little fact, um, the woman who's on the cover, the model actually reached out to me and said, oh, that's me on the cover. <laughs> so, uh, so it's pretty neat to know. Um, and, and the same thing had happened to me once, too, with the librarians by one of the models on that cover had reached out to me and said, oh, this is me. So it's always such a magical thing for us authors when we get to meet the faces, really, of our characters from the cover models. Um, so that was a pretty cool thing that happened. I was just going to say, when you brought that up, I remembered that about the Librarian Spy. And we also talked about the Librarian Spy because you had had some changes with the way the lamps were done and some of that. And so I just remembered we'd had some in-depth discussions about that cover and the model. Okay, and how cool it is that this time around, another model reached out to you and said, that's me on the cover. Yeah, it really is so cool. (laughs) I love that. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? So um, I just finished reading Only the Beautiful by Susan Meissner, which, oh my gosh, it was such a good book. Um, I listened to it and I couldn't stop listening to it because it was just amazing. Um, I also, before that, had finished Lady Tan's Circle of Women by Lisa C. And right now I am reading The Spectacular by Fiona Davis, and it is indeed spectacular. It really is. All of that Radio City Music Hall information and the Rockette information, such a beautiful book. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Good. Well, Madeline, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It was wonderful to chat with you. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Cindy. I really appreciate it. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, 
and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.